epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 3. We're reading verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word this morning, we ask for your help. It is only in your light, the light of your spirit, that we perceive and know any light at all from you. And so we ask that you would teach us and guide us in the ways of truth this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, a friend gave me a large, unexpected, and thoughtful Christmas gift. Honestly, it was overwhelming, and I had to think about how to respond to the gift. It was something that I valued, but also not anything necessarily that I deserved and that I couldn't also do for myself. It was something completely out of the ordinary, something that I had no means to make, uh, make possible for myself. And so it was one of those situations where I couldn't scramble in my friend's presence as he gave me the gift and say, oh, well, you know, your gift is on the way. It's caught up in the U.S. Postal Service. I already ordered it from Amazon. It was such a generous gesture on his part that it put me in the position not to be able to perform an exchange. There was no way I could match the value of the gift. But all I could do was receive it. And when we're honest with ourselves, when we find ourselves in that kind of moment, we recognize that lavish gifts, generous gifts, that they're wonderful, but also that they're very difficult, that they're hard on us, that it's hard to receive. It is very difficult as a human being to receive something that's unexpected and especially something that's undeserved. In Romans 3, we encounter this same dynamic. But the gift exchange is not from one human to another. The gift now descends from heaven. It's one way and it's unilateral. In verse 24, we learn the nature of that gift. If you follow there, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it is critical to apply those same dynamics, those same dynamics just discussed, that it's hard to receive an unexpected and undeserved gift from another human. 
it's critical to apply those same dynamics to here, to this gift that God gives to the undeserving. So what exactly is it, though? Why is it hard for you and why is it hard for me to receive something unexpected and undeserved? John Barclay, who's a New Testament scholar, written a new book entitled Paul and the Gift. And he points out that there's an ancient and a modern presupposition that brings us into conflict with this gift. It's the presumption of two things. First, that good gifts are given to the worthy. You'll find this in the ancient literature, that good gifts were only given to worthy recipients, but you don't simply have to look in ancient literature. You can read through psychology today where you'll find scores of articles about gift giving. And the presumption that we share in our culture is that good gifts are given to those who are worthy. And second, closely related to that, that the costlier the gift, the more discriminating it is to be given. And it's these two presuppositions, these two presumptions about gift giving that bring us into direct conflict with God here and what is revealed to us in Romans 3. It is contrary to the logic of the gospel. And so this morning, ahead of our celebration at the Lord's table, what's important for us to do is unpack this gift of God and how it works. And so we're going to consider four different things about the gift of grace. First, in verses 21 through 22, let's consider the basis of this gift that God freely brings to us. Verse 24, we've already noted that the gift is that we're justified by grace. That is to say that we are declared to be right. We are given the status of righteous before God, despite everything else that's true about us. And the question that we have to answer is, why does God do that? We see the answer in these first two verses of our passage. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is now the second time that we've encountered this phrase, the righteousness of God. We first met it in chapter 1, in verse 17, in the thematic sentence of the entire book of Romans. And we discussed there several weeks ago that it was important to unpack that phrase and to understand what is being said. Because the righteousness of God could refer to several different things. There are times in the Bible where it refers to a gift that God gives to us. And there are also times in the Bible, like we see in Psalm 143 today, that it refers to an attribute of God that leads to an activity of God. That God's righteousness is something that belongs to his character that then influences his actions, the things that he does. And it is that notion of righteousness that I believe is in focus here that Paul is presenting to us. That God's righteousness is an attribute that belongs to him, that he is faithful to his promises, that he always has regards to those, that he's just and merciful, and that this leads then to a certain activity, 
And that activity is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the expression, the manifestation that we're reading about of the righteousness of God. It is the sending of Jesus into the world. And so this salvation that comes to us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is God's activity. And this is what God has done for us. The basis of the gift that God gives to us is his righteousness. And so what's important for us to, to get here, when we look at the basis of the gift that God brings into our lives, is that it's distinctly not rooted in anything human. That this was God's decisive act in sending Jesus into the world on our behalf. That it flowed from the very character and heart of God and then manifest itself in this activity of God in which he took on human flesh, in which he became a man, in which he died on our behalf, in which he had lived a righteous life and then in which he was raised. And so the gift of God is rooted in God himself and it's also rooted in what God alone can do for us. And this leads us to a closely related second point. It's in verses 23 and 24 that we learn about the imbalance of this gift that God gives to us. If you follow here, for all have sinned, or for there is no distinction at the end of verse 22, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Please note the imbalance of what has been said here. We've already seen in Romans that we have the righteousness of God on display, and that righteousness is an answer to human unrighteousness and ungodliness that Paul speaks of in chapter 1 in verses 18. And so God's righteousness is answering human unrighteousness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, God is justifying people from that mass of sinful humanity. God is counting them righteous despite what they have done. What is being announced here for us is just the utter incongruity that there is no correspondence between the gift and the worthiness of the recipient. That all have been indicted by God, not one of us is righteous, and yet God counts us righteous, sheerly by a gift. And it's precisely here, at this point of imbalance, that it's hard for us to accept. Why is that? It is a fundamental assault on our independence and on our pride. It means that God doesn't come searching the earth for a few worthy recipients, a few who show themselves qualified. It means that God doesn't come and reward some group of righteous people that have kept it together. No, what it means is that God gives a gift to the undeserving, who were unqualified, who could do nothing to put a claim on God, and they have to simply receive it. 
to know that gift, we do have to accept the indictment that is brought against us. That's laid out for us in the book of Romans from halfway through chapter 1 through almost fully through chapter 3. We've, div- we've dove into this over the past several weeks in which we see the profound nature of that indictment, that we are unrighteous and ungodly, that we have turned against God. And that that rebellion is not just a few indiscretions that we've committed, that most of us can own up to. But we saw in chapter 1 that that rebellion was about a turning against God in which we didn't want anything to do with him. That God revealed to us his wisdom in the works of his hands, and yet we desire to construct our own wisdom. That eating from the tree of the knowledge in good and evil was our turn in independence and autonomy against God. And that this is the fundamental and primary offense of human beings. And then we've seen that the human sinful condition expresses itself in a multitude of ways. And however that expression takes shape, it is all a reflection of human beings' decision to be independent of God. And so when we're confronted here by the imbalance, the very thing that gets confronted is this primal sin that we have all participated in. That God once again says to us that we're not created and we're not destined to be independent. And that if we are to be reconciled to him, that there has to be an imbalance in this gift. That is something that he alone can do on our behalf. And so this is who we are. But despite it all, God offers a gracious gift. But to receive it, we have to accept that the ledger is imbalanced. And there's nothing that you and I can do to write that imbalance. This is what it means to receive the gift. The third angle on gift that we find here from Romans 3, we also see the means of appropriating it. That is making it our own. There's a distinct contrast set up in chapter 3. If you look in verse 20, it's there where Paul writes, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so it's not out of any obedience to the law that a human being makes themselves right with God. And so how is it that a human being becomes right with God? And we find the answer three times in verses 21 through 26. Listen to the repetition. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. To be received by faith in verse 25. And then once again in verse 26, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it's not a righteousness out of obedience to the law. It's a righteousness out of faith. A faith that looks to Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation and atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so the appropriate response to this overwhelming gift that is presented to us in Jesus is to appropriate that gift by believing and trusting in him. 
It is a gift that is completely at odds with your worthiness and with mine. And what exactly does God want you to do with it, though, in appropriating it? He doesn't want us to stiffen up and say, no thanks, I'm all good here. This would be to deny the fundamental problem at our core that we're unreconciled with God. He also doesn't want us to feign a humility and anxiously try to exchange something with him for it. That is to think that we can do something to gussy ourselves up and make ourselves appealing to him. Know what God is presenting to us in the gospel is that he wants us to embrace it. He wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to appropriate it. And this is what I recognized with my friend. As I stood in his presence, and he with great excitement gave me a lavish and generous gift. And in my own awkwardness, not knowing what to do with it, wanting somehow to offer something in exchange to hide my own sense of shame, that he was giving me something I could not do for myself. And so there, my own pride is being revealed, my own stubbornness and selfishness. And yet here is the extending of a gift to me. What did my friend want me to do? He wanted me to take it up. He knew it was something that would benefit me. He wanted me to appropriate it. He wanted me to delight in it. And friends, that's what God wants too. For you to believe, to trust, to receive the gift as it's extended to you. Not to stiffen, not to feign a humility. But rather simply to recognize the lavishness of it and to enjoy it as you look to Jesus in faith. The final piece of this development in Paul's thoughts as he unfolds the gift of God's grace to us. We find in verses 25 and 26. And here we see the perfection of God's gift. In verses 25 and 26, Paul addresses a dilemma that God's grace presents, and it's a dilemma that God's grace presents to human thought and also somewhat to God himself. What Paul has to answer is the question, how is it that a righteous God counts sinners righteous. We've seen that God in his righteousness punishes rightly human sins, that God brings his wrath against human sinners. But yet we've learned that God in his righteousness also forgives humans of their sins. And so how does a righteous God pass over sins exactly? This is the quandary that Paul answers here. His presumption is that it's not merciful and it's also not just if God ignores human sin. That is, he doesn't just simply act like it doesn't exist. What that would imply is that human sin doesn't matter very much. But we've seen the extent to which he labors that human sin is a massive problem. And so how exactly was God going to be just? Humans deserve judgment, 
for their rebellion, for their striking out in autonomy against God. But how is God going to be the justifier or forgiver of those who have faith? This is what he needs to answer. We find the answer in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The answer to the dilemma that confronts God himself is that he would put forward, he would take the initiative in putting forward a propitiation, that is, an appeasing sacrifice that would appease his righteous wrath, that righteous blood was shed for unrighteous humans, and that righteous blood belonged to no one but Jesus. That he willingly, in obedience, goes to the cross on your behalf and on my behalf. That he might be an atoning sacrifice, an appeasement of God's wrath. That he was judged in your place and in my place. And that he willingly and freely did this for us. And so our judgment is passed on the head of someone else. And what this means is that God can be just. Because the judgment that sin deserved, in order for God to be righteous, that judgment had to be exercised. Sin had to be dealt with. The indictment had been passed on us, but the verdict is then passed on Jesus. And so God is just. And now he can be the justifier. He can be the one who remits our sins and forgives them. Because we have a righteous status by faith before God. As we look in faith to Jesus, his righteousness becomes our own. And so the justice of God is completely satisfied. And we see the perfection of it here in God's free gift to you and to me that he desires for us to take up in faith. Free and sheer grace. A gift. It sounds incredibly appealing, and yet you and I both feel how hard it is because we want to make an exchange. But what the gospel does is confronts us in our utter inability, in our utter depravity, in our utter emptiness that we have nothing to offer. And then it asks that with those empty hands, we recognize that this gift comes from God. That it's rooted in his righteousness. A righteousness that's been manifested in the coming of Jesus into the world. And he asks that we accept the imbalance of the equation. That we recognize nothing can be done on our part. That it's accomplished by God. He asks that we recognize that it's appropriated by faith. That that faith is a resting in Jesus. That it's not an activity that earns, that it appropriates. And it looks from weakness to receive what has been offered. And he asks that we get lost in the wonder of the perfections of the gift. That God has satisfied his justice And God has also brought forth his mercy for you. And he's done so through the expense of his son. Friends, this is the perfection of the gift. And it's manifested before us in Jesus. 
and it's manifested today in the very words that we hear in the preaching of the gospel and that God would have us richly delight that as hard as the indictment is that the verdict passed over your life as you look in faith to Jesus is righteous that you have a right standing with him through Christ let's pray Father we do stop to rejoice and to give thanks in the simplicity of the gospel. A gift that comes to us despite all of our undeserving. We recognize that this gift confronts us in all of our pride and all of our autonomy. And that we long in our own sinful flesh to make an exchange with you. That we long to be worthy recipients of it. But yet the indictment of the gospel is that we are not, that we're not worthy, and that there is an imbalanced exchange. And so God, write this upon our hearts, deep and profoundly within us, that we are received through faith in Jesus and his great accomplishment for us and going down into death and being raised because he alone is the righteous one. Free us from all the legalism and the pride Keep us also from simply ignoring this. May we not stiffen our necks and say no thanks. But may we receive it in faith, delighting in it and enjoying it. May that be the character of each of our lives and maybe it be the character of our church. And allow that good news to produce thanksgiving and joy and gratitude and even obedience on the other side. Capture us and captivate us with this gift. And Father, we come this morning recognizing that as those who have received this gift, that you grant us the privilege of communing with you, of offering prayers on behalf of our world, on behalf of our church, and on behalf of ourselves. And so hear us as we come. And let's ask God that he would fill the world with the knowledge of his glory, especially praying for our mission partner, Kurt Nelson, working with East-West Ministries International. Ask that God would bless his leadership and his oversight to the ministry endeavors in over 50 countries in which East-West currently operates. And let's pray for the growth of God's kingdom in our city especially praying for our ministry partner, City Rescue Mission. Ask God to bless their efforts to provide hope and healing to the needy and the downcast in our city. Let's pray for all in authority, especially for our mayor, Lenny Curry, that he will promote justice, restrain evil, and uphold integrity and truth in our city. Ask God to give him wisdom and endurance to govern well through the current difficulties. Let's pray for all who grieve and suffer in body and in mind within our congregation. Let's remember Holly Bosma, Barb Day, Gar Garganius, 
Hector and Viona Harima, Wayne Noble, Asher Park, Jewel Smith, and Jim and Eileen Tyson. And let's pray for the children and youth of Christ Church, asking God to bless them with the knowledge of his great love and of his free gift for them in Jesus Christ. And let's close saying the prayer our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.